wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome. Links to connect with us through Facebook, Instagram and Twitter are available at bleedingdaylight.net. Please share this and other episodes with others and consider leaving a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm talking to two people today who walked across their nation. They have an incredible story to tell, and I'll introduce you in just a moment. My guests today took part in a life-changing adventure, walking from one side of America to the other. Together, they battled weather, fatigue, and seemingly endless miles to complete the distance in just six months. Today, we'll explore why they decided to take on such an extraordinary quest. Their adventure sparked the book, and so we walked, the inspirational story of a couple's walk across America. Rick and Jane McKinney, thank you so much for your time today on Bleeding Daylight. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes, it is. I suppose the obvious first question is, have you not heard of aeroplanes? <laughs> uh, we've heard of airplanes and bicycles, but uh, the Lord said walk, so that's what we did. <laughs> Together you walked 2,770 miles or almost 4,500 kilometres. Help me understand your reasoning for taking on such a huge project. Well, at the time, Rodney, we were uh, traveling around America, uh, preaching, singing, doing concerts, children's ministry, and full-time evangelism. I was preaching that year about reclaiming America. I was studying one night in the study at the school we were staying at, and I was studying out of Joshua chapter 1, and I read the verse that says, every place you put the sole of your foot, you can claim. And I heard a voice. I don't know whether anyone else in the room would have been able to hear it or not, but I heard a voice that said, do you believe that? God and I kind of had a conversation back and forth. And I said, I believe you said that to Joshua. He said, no, do you believe the principle? And I said, I do believe the principle. And so the question was, what do you want to claim? And I said, our country. He said, then put the sole of your foot down. So that's where it all started. We talked about what that was going to look like, and we prepared for a year. It took a couple of weeks for me to actually work up the courage to tell Jane that that's what I thought God was saying to us. That was the impetus for the walk. Uh, we felt strongly that God wanted us to walk across America to share our faith individually with people because we encourage people to do that. And so we kind of had to put our money where our mouth was and say, this is what we believe, and we believe it so strongly that we're willing to walk across America to share our faith, but also to pray for our country. And we prayed thousands and thousands of prayers as we walked across the country. Jane, how did he break it to you that this was this conversation that he was having with God? And how long did it take for you to say, yep, I, I think that you're right? My first thought was, can we ride bikes? Because we had begun to ride bikes, and I thought that would be so much easier. But he said, no, God said walk. The principle is to put your, your feet down. At that point, we'd been married quite a few years already, and I'd already followed him through some adventures. And so I knew that if he said God told him, that God told him. And so we walked. <laughs> I want to get onto the walk in a moment, but maybe you can help me clear up some of the language that you're using here. You're talking about claiming a nation. Now, 
whenever we hear that sort of language, we can often think this is something political, that this is something we hear of a nation that is wanting to take over another nation and they're claiming that land. Yet this is something quite different. You're harking back to this scriptural reference. So what does it mean to actually claim a land? Well, for us, and a lot of people thought that the walk was political. When we walked, there was a Republican in the White House, and many people assumed that we were walking for the Republican Party or for some conservative cause. But really, that wasn't the reasoning at all. It wasn't about politics. It wasn't about being conservative or liberal. It was more about claiming our land returning to what our founding fathers had determined was the best path for a nation. And that would be to have that nation with God, the one true God, Jehovah, as their leader, as the one who caused uh, them to do the things they did. And so for us, it wasn't political. It was moral in a sense, because one of the things we were sharing with as we walked across the country was the need for our country to return to the morals and the values of our forefathers, things that were absolute. We had come into this postmodern era where there were no absolutes. Nothing was absolutely right or absolutely wrong. And that's not what we believe the Bible teaches. We believe the Bible teaches that there are absolutes. And we wanted to make that stand and make that claim that this is a nation whose God needs to be the Lord. And the promise of scripture is that when he is the Lord of your land, he blesses the land, he protects the land, he takes care of the land. And so that's what we were doing. We weren't trying to claim it politically or claim land like an aggressor might do with a neighboring country, but we were trying to claim the spiritual atmosphere of our nation for the Lord. Let me understand a little bit more about how it worked, because I want to get on. I know that you have some great stories of people you've met along the way and what God did, but help me first understand the mechanics of it all. Is it just that you started walking and then you got to the other side eventually after many days and, and you just stopped, or what was the process like each day? We were already traveling, and so we owned our own uh, motorhome. We enlisted and requested through uh, radio and emails, people to come and drive for us. We were on several radio stations before, and people volunteered. People we met in churches. We were pulling a van behind our motorhome. We would park at a campground. They would drive us out to where we were walking that day. We would get out, and we would walk approximately 20 miles a day. They would pick us up with a few stops along the way for lunches, change shoes, etc., take us back to camp for the night. Then they would take us back out. We had a stick with a blue flag on it, and we would drive it into the ground so we knew exactly where we stopped. And they would take us back out the next morning, drop us off, and we would walk. So that's basically what we did. We got to Washington, D.C. on June 30th. We got to the Arlington Cemetery that day, and we had about 30 friends that met us there, some of our drivers, our pastor, our families. We did some Washington, D.C. sightseeing until July 4th, and on the morning of July 4th, we walked into Washington, D.C. There was a lot of planning that went into the trip. A person who was helping us coordinate the walk and Jane and I, between the two of us, we drove the entire route the year before. 
And so we scoped out where campgrounds were. We knew we needed to walk about 120 miles a week. And so we looked for campgrounds in the middle of that 120 miles. We actually started walking the year before. We walked about 1,500 miles in 2005, the year before the walk, tried out lots of different shoes. We talked to long distance walkers. We talked about weather, the kind of clothing we needed to buy. And so there was an awful lot of preparation that went into the walk the year before. So it wasn't just start walking and you end up in Washington, D.C. We had a plan. Fortunately, for the people we met and for our personal transformation, there were lots of interruptions along the way. There were days we didn't get as many miles as we thought we would. There were days when we talked to a lot more people than we had counted on, and so that delayed us. There were some injuries along the way, and so all of that, we believe, was ordered of God. The best laid plans sometimes don't work out exactly like you think they will, but we did actually get to Washington a few days early. There is the plan that is put in place for an adventure like this, and Some things will go the way that you imagine, but many things won't. And then, of course, when you add God into the mix, truly believing that this is something that God has called you to do, I'm sure that he was ready to surprise you along the way. What were some of the surprises that he threw into the mix that you really just were not expecting? I think the first big surprise was that uh, we started the walk on January 1st. We had kind of been raised to believe that the Rose Bowl Parade was always on January 1st. And so when we routed ourselves through Pasadena, California, where the Rose Bowl Parade happens, we did that for January 2nd, the second day of the walk. What we didn't know was that they don't hold the Rose Bowl Parade on the 1st if the 1st falls on a Sunday. They wait till Monday. So on the second day of the walk, we turned the corner and found ourselves right in the middle of the Rose Bowl Parade (laughs) with hundreds of thousands of people. And it took a lot longer to get through that area than we thought it would. And it was raining all day. It was a very tough day. But at the end of that day, we met a man named Anthony who was homeless. He approached us for some money. He asked me for a dollar. He looked at me and I said, why do you need a dollar? And he said, for milk. And I said, okay. So Rick just kind of stood back and let me talk to him. Well, as Rick said, we had been walking a very long day, tired, wet. It it had been raining all day. And I was just pretty ready to be done. And I just looked at him. His name was Anthony. I said, Anthony, do you know Jesus? (laughs) Just like that. And he looked at me and he said, no, but I sure would like to. And I said, okay, I can tell you how. So right there on the street at the end of the Rose Bowl Parade, second day that we were walking, I was able to lead Anthony to the Lord. Rick had been fishing for his dollar and handed it to him after that conversation. And he said, nah, I don't need a dollar. (laughs) So we parted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was just one of the things that we saw when we were in Russellville, Arkansas. I had a very bad injury, a burn, which took me to the emergency room and ultimately to the burn center in Little Rock, Arkansas. We were supposed to walk that day beginning in Moralton. We normally started walking about seven o'clock in the morning before businesses were open. But because of the injury, I didn't walk until Monday instead of Friday. And because of the injury, I actually walked a couple hours late that day. And when we walked through Moralton, there was a little car repair shop, man there called Jeff who was working, and I began a conversation with him. Ultimately, I also led Jeff to the Lord. The thing is that if I had not had that injury on Friday, we would have walked through Moralton at seven o'clock in the morning before the car repair shop was open. 
But because of the injury and because of the delays, we were there on Monday morning at nine o'clock when Jeff was open for his business. And I was able to lead him to the Lord as well. We saw these kinds of divine appointments that God had set. And we also noticed in retrospect many times how God had ordered our steps up until that point, delayed us or accelerated our path a bit. Maybe something happened that allowed us to move a little faster than we counted on that day. Ultimately, down the road, we met exactly the right people at exactly the right time. We had divine appointments set all across the country that we didn't know about until we got there. That's one of the ways that we saw God do such extraordinary things. It must have been amazing to be able to enter into so many situations like that. And I'm sure that there were so many conversations that you were able to have with people along the way. And I also suppose that as you're walking along, there's a natural conversation starter that as normally cars would drive into a town and out of town and there's not much going on, the very fact that you're walking through would have started a lot of conversations, wouldn't it? It did. We actually dressed alike every day, which kind of drew more attention to the fact that we were doing something out of the ordinary. So when people saw us, a lot of times they would approach us and say, what are you doing? (laughs) We said, well, we're walking across America. Really? Yes. Why are you doing that? We'd be able to just launch almost immediately into a spiritual conversation. We're doing that to share Jesus with people. We and would do just you wonder, know him? Do you know him? <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you have a relationship with him? Or is there something we can pray with you about? Everybody has something that you can pray with them about. We've found very few people all across the country who were not willing to allow us to pray with them mm-hmm. and speak with them about Jesus. There are many people who would not claim to know Jesus and may even deny the existence of God. And yet this offer of prayer so often is something that sparks something in people Mm -hmm. that they will say, yes, please pray for me, or or even sometimes put in a way of, well, yeah, if if you think it'll do some good, there's this invitation to pray, even though they may not believe in the person that you're praying to. Tell me about that kind of experience along the way. What we found many times was that the response was, and this happened uh, one time I remember particularly in Amarillo, Texas. There was a truck driver who'd just gotten out of his truck and he was walking toward a restaurant. And so Jane and I were just about done for the day and we encountered him and we began to talk to him. We asked him about Jesus. His response was, I don't have a problem with Jesus, but I have a big problem with his people. We found that kind of response to be fairly prevalent. It's not that most people have a problem with God or that they have a problem with the idea or the concept of Jesus, nearly as much as it is the fact that they've been hurt or wounded by someone who claims to know him or have a relationship with him. Mm -hmm. And we found that to be so unfortunate. We also found it to be kind of affirmed over and over because we got such great responses practically everywhere we went, except churches. We would knock on the doors of churches many times if we had a few minutes extra and uh, just ask the pastor or the person who was there, is there anything we could pray with you about or pray for the church about? And many times the response we got from the churches was rude. Many times the churches would just say, we don't want anything to do with with what you're doing. When (laughs) Christians or church people act that way, you can understand why people have a problem. They think they have a problem with Jesus, but what they really have is a problem with his people or his church. I was really surprised at at the responses from from the churches. There were, like he said, very few 
people on the street, on, on the roads, shunned us. We did have a few that just said, I don't want to talk, leave me alone. But it, it was just amazing the amount of people who were open. You meet a stranger on the street and you just start talking and you would think they would be about their own business. But it was amazing to me how many people actually stopped and talked to us. Mm-hmm. And again, that was just God. He just ordered our steps and planned the encounters I mean, we had people we met, strangers, that as soon as they heard what we were doing, they wanted to go with us. <laughs> this one woman in California, she said, I'll be back. And she went home and she said, she said, I have a van and a mattress. I can go with you. And she came back and she said, well, my husband won't let me go, but I'll be praying for you. <laughs> it was amazing how the walk resonated with people along the way. They agreed with what we were doing. They agreed to pray for us and with us as we went. We also had great support back home. We had most of the churches in our community in Harrison, Ohio, would meet every week and pray for us. And then at the end of their prayer meeting, they would call us on the road and uh, ask us if there was anything specific we needed or uh, they had helped us raise a lot of the financial support. That was also a great comfort to us. By the way, we were never afraid of people. We had been warned many times, you should be afraid of this neighborhood or that neighborhood, or don't go here, or don't go there. We can honestly say we were never frightened by the people we met. We walked through some very depressed neighborhoods. We met lots of homeless people, lots of people living under bridges. We never felt threatened by them. Dogs, that was a different story (laughs) uh, completely, (laughs) but people never threatened us. I guess you're in this very difficult situation. As you're meeting with people... And those that have said, yes, I I want to know Christ, or even those who have more of a spiritual interest and you're wanting to plug them in, if the churches in those towns are not even open to you, how do you connect those people with a group of Jesus followers, with a local fellowship that would help them in a discipleship process? That is a great question. (laughs) The first thing I told Anthony, I said, do you know of a church that you can go to? This was the man, you know, back on the second day. And he said, no. And I said, do you know of a ministry that helps people? And I believe he said yes, as I'm recalling the conversation. If we didn't know the area or know a church, we would try to point them to a ministry that could help them. That's one of the things we continued to pray about then. After we left a person like that, we would continue to pray for them. Absolutely. We had a truck driver out on Route 66 in the middle of the desert who got lost and needed to turn his truck around. He was driving a Werner truck. Basically, he had kind of drifted away from God, and we had a great conversation with him. So every day, practically, of the walk, we would see at least one Werner truck, one truck with the name Werner on the side. And the first thing Jane would say when we saw a truck like that is, pray for Mike, pray for Mike. We still do that. 17 years later, every time we see a Werner truck, we say, pray for Mike. And so we continued to pray. We did try to have a conversation with people like Anthony and Jeff and say, one of the most important things you need to do, if you don't have a Bible, get a Bible, begin to read a Bible, begin to spend time in prayer, Mm -hmm. find some other Christians, some other believers, some other people who are following Jesus and get with them. Uh, If you can find a great church that will love you and accept you the way you are, then you ought to become a part of that fellowship. But that is really one of the the most difficult parts of the walk. We had cards printed up. We had a 1-800 number at the time back when that was uh, the thing to do. And many of the people that we talked to, many of them emailed us 
and called us and corresponded with us one way or the other after the walk for months and months and months. We kept those relationships going. Some of the people who were touched by the walk, we're still in contact with. A lady in Oklahoma, in Muldrow, Oklahoma, we're still in contact with her. Uh, We're actually speaking at a church in a couple of weeks. The person who's the pastor there was one of our drivers, and she dedicated herself to the Lord after the walk, and she saw how we witnessed to people and shared with people. And she went back and became a NASCAR chaplain, and now she's a pastor of a church. We tried our very best as much as we could when we were passing through to make a lasting impact and keep in contact with people so that we could help them in that discipleship process. We could encourage them to become part of a local fellowship. But you're right. It's very sad when you can't recommend that people just go to whatever church is closest to them and know that they may or may not be accepted. I'm wondering what the walk was like, not only for those that you met, and I know that there are plenty of other stories, and if people grab hold of that book, then they're going to read a whole lot more of those stories and a lot more detail about the walk and its effect. But what about for you personally and together as a couple? How did that change things for you? Physically, it was much more demanding than we had ever imagined. We were not and are not athletes. Even though we had trained um, over 1,500 miles the year before, when you start walking 20 miles a day every day, it's hard. So we both had feet issues. The rain didn't help on the second day. We had blisters. We were tired. Rick would say that, you know, would get up in the morning, and he would look at me, and he'd say, you don't have to go today. And I said, "Uh, yes, I do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Quitting is not an option. We are doing this. And we walked together every step of the way. Some people thought maybe we tag-teamed, like I would rest, and he would walk, or he would, no, we walked every step together. I'll be honest with you, out in the desert where there's nobody, we talked a lot to God, and we talked a lot to each other. We've been together a long time. Next year, Ronnie will celebrate our 50th anniversary. We're used to talking to each other, and and we're good at it. Some people say, you know, my husband and I couldn't even spend a day together, much less six months. Well, we can, and that's God, too. I think for us, the transformation, the real transformation that happened obviously happened in people we met, people we talked to, people that came to Christ as a result of the walk. But the real transformation that we like to talk about is the change that took place in us. We thought that the walk when we started was about the steps. Uh, What we found out along the way was that it was more about the stops than the steps. Every time we stopped and talked to someone at a bus stop or somewhere else where they happened to be standing or passed them on the street and began a conversation, each one of those conversations transformed us and changed us. One of the things we prayed before the walk began was that God would give us the eyes of Jesus, that we would see people the way Jesus saw people. And I always warn people, don't ever pray that prayer unless you mean it and unless you're ready for God to really change your life. Because when you begin to see people the way he sees people, it just affects your heart. It affects Mm -hmm. your attitude. It affects everything. We talked, I couldn't even begin to tell you how many homeless people we talked to, people living in the alleys behind stores, eating out of garbage cans, living underneath bridges. And when you see those people the way Jesus sees them, it changes you. Our concern, our attitude about people changed. We met every kind of person that you can conceive of. We walked through five 
Native American reservations. We walked through major cities, inner cities. We walked through communities that were predominantly African-American. As a matter of fact, some of the best responses we got were in those African-American communities. People there accepted us and hugged us, and we gave them food cards, McDonald's gift cards so that they could buy food. And we had great relationships with them, even in just a matter of a, a few moments' time. But all of those encounters changed us. And uh, we've never been the same. It's been 17 years since we finished the walk. We have never been the same. We will always be changed because of the walk and because of the steps and because of the stops. There is a burden that I'm sure you felt before you started the walk, a burden to see people one to Christ. And and obviously the ministries that you've been involved in in the past, you've always been involved in evangelistic mission reaching out to people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's already a burden there. But how much more did that burden grow as you started to see the reality of the streets and the alleyways of America? Most of our ministry for 50 years has been inside the church walls. I pastored for many, many years. And so most of the people that you encounter inside the four walls of the church are either already believers or they have some interest in spiritual things, and that's why they're there. When you hit the streets, when you go to other countries like India and China, Mexico, what you find is once you're outside the four walls of the church, that's not the case anymore. The people you're talking to are not necessarily inclined towards spiritual things. They aren't necessarily interested in what you have to say about Jesus. And so you have to rely on the Holy Spirit to draw them into that conversation and to draw them into that interest so that there's an open door for you to talk. So I think that's that's one of the main things that we saw. And one of the main things that changed in us is understanding that as we saw these people outside the four walls of the church, it was going to have to change the way we approached them, uh, the way we talked to them, the way we accepted them. And we had to do that with absolutely no barriers. We couldn't allow where they were living or what they looked like or what they smelled like or what color their skin was. We couldn't allow any of those things to be a barrier to sharing the gospel. And I think that's one of the the transformations that took place in us was realizing the value of every single person and that every single person has an eternity to face. And if we don't share Jesus with them, we're not sure anybody else will. So it put an impetus on us to do something that was monumental, that had eternal consequences. And therefore, that became the first priority of every step that we took was finding the people who God was leading us to to talk about Christ. As you say, the walk was around 17 years ago that you finished. How do you continue to stoke the fire of that burden for the unreached? We have done a lot of things in those 17 years. One of the first things we did when we came back from the walk was we started a ministry for the homeless. We talked to our church. We began to gather items that homeless people might need. And then we began to have days when we would go to places where we knew people who were homeless congregated. And we would put up posters the day before. We're going to be here tomorrow with food. We'll be here tomorrow with clothing, with underwear, with socks, with winter clothing, uh, whatever the season was and whatever the need was going to be. And we would take people from our church and set up tables. And there would be hundreds of homeless people who would come. We've also started doing a lot of things over the last 17 years where we moved, tried to move the church 
outside of the walls of the church, to become a, a church without walls, reaching college students, reaching children in the community, going into subsidized government housing for people who are in need. We have uh, gone there rather than expecting them to come to the church. Those are some of the ways that we've continued to engage in that evangelistic fire that God put in our heart during the walk. I know it sounds amazing because 17 years is a long time, but that, that fire has never gone out. It has never dwindled. And we've faced a lot of difficulties in those years, some health issues and uh, some other things. But God has continued to burden our hearts for those who need Jesus. And that is the priority of our life. And there are ways that everyone can do that. You don't have to have a ministry. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to go to downtown wherever and set up a food distribution. You can ask your waitress at the table that's serving you what you can pray with them about. We did that just, what day was that? One day last week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were both very burdened for this this girl that was our server. And we just said, what can we pray for you about? And man, did she just open up. She just gushed. She had been in foster care. She was struggling with her parents. She was struggling financially. And Rick just went out to the car and got her a book. And and we signed it over to her and we prayed with her right there in the restaurant. I mean, you can do that. People can do that. You don't have to be Rick and Jane walking across America. I can imagine that there's many people listening at the moment that, as you say, they're wondering about how they can get outside the walls of the church. Maybe they don't have the courage to open up that conversation just yet. Are there any other small steps that they can take that are going to bring them closer to that opportunity to open those conversations? There's a lot of steps. I've just written a small booklet and I'm writing the rest of the book. It'll be coming out soon called Sharing Jesus. And the first part is called Sharing Jesus Without Saying a Word. And then that little booklet, there are 12 ideas that people can utilize to share Jesus without speaking. So a lot of people are introverts. A lot of people don't like to talk to other people about spiritual things, but there are things that you can do without actually verbalizing the gospel that will show the love of Christ to people. And so start with small steps. You don't start by walking across your country. You start with small steps. You talk to your waitress. You talk to the person who picks up your rubbish each week. You talk to the people who you encounter at the gas station or at the grocery store, to the person who's checking you out. You can do something as simple as smile. And if you smile and are pleasant with people on a consistent basis, eventually they'll want to know why you smile, Mm -hmm. why you're happy, why you're always in a good mood. They'll want to understand that. And so it'll open the door for you to talk. So start with very small things. Start in ways that maybe don't require you to say a lot or memorize a program to witness or share your faith. But once you get hooked (laughs) and once you see people begin to respond to the gospel, once you walk away from that waitress and God says to you, that was exactly what I wanted you to do and exactly what I wanted you to say, you get kind of addicted to that in a good way. And you want to do it over and over and over again. And the more you do it, the bolder you get, the bolder you get, the more opportunities God will give you to share your faith. I want to say thank you for the time that you've spent talking to me today. I'm talking to Rick and Jane McKinney, who wrote the book, And So We Walked, the inspirational story of a couple's walk across America. Of course, you can find out more about their story in that book. And as Rick mentioned, there is the new book coming out that is going to help you 
to be able to start some of those conversations and be a witness yourself. I'm wondering, what is the easiest place for people to find the book and to get in touch with you? We're on Amazon and they can get it in Kindle or ebook or they can buy a paperback. Put in Rick and Jane McKinney or Walk Across America or And So We Walked. Any of those words will get you to the book. That's the easiest way. You can also go to our website, which I encourage people to do, rickandjanemckinney.com. You can get the books there, but also there's lots of information. There's pictures of us in India and Mexico and China and Tibet, all around the world where we've ministered. There are blogs that I write. That's probably the one stop they can make and get everything done in one experience. And there's a video on there as well. There is a video. Uh, One of our drivers made a video of us while we were walking, and it's like a day in the life of the walk across America, and it's pretty interesting. It'll give you a really good idea of what a day was like. Yeah. I will put links to both Amazon and to your website in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can find them easily. But Rick, Jane, thank you so much for your time today on Bleeding Daylight. You're very welcome. Thank you. So glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.